0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. So, you're going to need your Bible today. We're going to walk through this passage and we're going to look at something. Uh, we're going to look at uh, two points out of this passage. We're going to look at Jesus' identity and we're going to look at Jesus's innocence. And we're going to see why those things are important for us today. Um, uh, Mr. James, would you go to that uh, goal slide? I wanted to bring this up to you. In January, we set a goal for our church. In January, we set a goal. And one of our goals is that uh, in worship, by the end of this year, uh, we would have 250 in worship on a weekly basis. 250 in worship on a weekly basis. Now, uh, that doesn't seem like a huge goal, but one of the hardest uh, barriers to overcome in church growth is the 200 mark. And on our our full days, where uh, everybody wakes up and calls one another and says, are you going to church? We have about 215. Um, but on our average weekend, you can see we're at about 175 in worship. Uh, I think it's because some people call and they go, it's your weekend to go to church. No, I was there last weekend. Oh, no, it's your weekend. So I'm not sure how that works, but we're figuring it out. But uh, this goal is a God-sized goal. Uh, we need God's help to do it. And what we looked at on Wednesday night is out of the book of 1 Timothy, about how prayer is attached to the mission of God. If we want to be about God's mission, we cannot accomplish God's mission without God's power. And so we need God's Holy Spirit to do a great work in us and through us. Amen? And so I want to just ask you, make, make this a matter of prayer on a daily basis. Father, this is our church's goal. We want to reach that goal, not because we want to pat ourselves on the back, but we believe that every time we shoot for a goal that's a God-sized goal, it's going to involve lost people coming to Jesus. And that's what we want to see. Uh, the second goal is for, to have 200 in, worship, or in Sunday school. Uh, in average, we're about 150. We've been as high as 169 in the past few weeks, um, but our average in 2021 was 150. That's a big jump from 150 to 200 in a year. It's a God-sized goal. I'm not so worried about the goal as I am about seeing people, seeing our church be on mission and seeing people respond to the gospel message. And I hope that we would make these things a matter of prayer for you and for me. And so pray for the empty chair. Make your prayer for the empty chair. All right. So here we go. I want to walk through this passage, and I want to just look, okay? Look and see what God is trying to teach us. Two things, identity and innocence. Identity and innocence. And so we come in this moment, I want you to look at verse um, 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, I just want you to understand the forbearance and kindness of Jesus in this moment, that even on his attackers, he did not give to them what they rightfully deserved. Isn't that good news, somebody? He didn't. He didn't lash out. He didn't call down angels from heaven and say, sick them, boys, uh, like he could have. He didn't. He didn't even respond, which he could have. He could have named them. That was Ryan did that. Right? That was Christopher that just hit me, right? Uh, he could have done that, but he didn't. Uh, he's silent, like a sheep uh, led to slaughter, he remained silent. He opened not his mouth. Verse 66, it says When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said... Now, I want you to think about this council for a moment. Most of the time we don't give much credence or understanding to it. But this council is made up of 71 members. 71 members. And this council uh, was made up of chief chief priests and elders of the nation of Israel. So there were those who were uh, uh, spiritual leaders and those who were lay leaders inside this council. They were brought to... uh, Jesus was brought before them at uh, this house and the the word of God teaches us that this is likely Caiaphas's house and if you uh, go to Israel with me which I hope that you will I hope that you will consider we have a meeting in just a few weeks uh, on a Wednesday night March the 16th on Wednesday night we will have an, an informational meeting about Israel this coming October I would love for you to go with me and you will go uh, to the very place where Jesus denied Peter and where Jesus was held at the council and where he was tried and held overnight. And I would love for you to go with me. Verse 67, it says, If you are the Christ, tell us. The Christ. If you're the Christ, tell us. Now, there are three identities that Luke focuses on. Now, every other gospel gives a third or another problem, a level to this accusation that the Jews are accusing Jesus of. Every other gospel says, and he claims to destroy the temple in three days raise it, or raise it again. But I want you to understand that Luke in his gospel here, Luke focuses on only Jesus' identity. Only his identity. And so the first piece of Jesus' identity laid out for us is that he is the Christ of God. Christ is a um, a word that would mean Messiah, chosen one, anointed one. The Christ was the king who would come. And then look, look at verse 67 and 68. If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. Verse 68, and if I ask you, you will not answer. And in chapter 23... Verses 2 and 3, grab your Bible, follow along with me. 23, 2 and 3, it says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ. Christ. He points to himself as Jesus as the Christ. He is titled that way. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Christ means Savior, Christ means chosen one. Christ means Messiah. He is the promised one to come who will rescue us from slavery. He's Christ. The second piece of identity that we see is found in verse 69. It is that He is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. I want you to look at verse 69. It says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for Himself. If you go back and you read the Gospels, He will refer to Himself as the Son of Man numerous times. And you say, why in the world is Jesus referring to Himself as the Son of Man? Does the Son of Man mean that He was born of a virgin or He is a human in the flesh? No. Son of Man is a title out of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 And I think it's here on the screen. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a what? Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days who is God the Father. And was presented before him. And to him, look at this, was given dominion. To the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming that he is the son of man out of Daniel chapter 7. That he is the fulfillment of the king who would be given an eternal dominion and kingdom. Who would reign forever. That every person on planet earth should serve him and Jesus is claiming when he says the son of man came to seek and save that which is lost he's saying i am the daniel chapter 7 the fulfillment of daniel chapter 7 this is who i am do not mistake me for less the third title we have here in this passage is the son of god look at verse chapter 22 verse 70 and 71 and they all said are you the son of god then Are you the Son of God, then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Now, we read that phrase, You say that I am, and we go, That's a really weird answer. It's a really weird answer. Um, What does it actually mean? And it means something like this idea Yes, but not how you think about it. Yes, I am but differently than you would define it. I am the title that you say that I am, but different from the way that we would align with that theologically. And they said, they got what he was saying. They understood what he was saying. He said, what further evidence do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. He's claiming to be the very son of God in the flesh. There is so much irony in this passage. Jesus here is on trial for being who he is. He can't help who he is. And he is on trial for who he is. And he's going to be crucified. Why? For being who he is. And here's the irony. Jesus sits in a trial where there is a a group of people, a council, judging Him. The council is exerting their authority and they're executing judgment on Jesus, but what's ironic about this is the only authority they have is the authority that He, Jesus, has given to them. Jesus is the Christ of God the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is the divine Messiah, the true and coming King. He is the one whose throne will endure forever. And He sits not as judge, but being judged by this council. Isn't that funny? And the council, they have this or seem to have this Authority in this judgment at the moment, but who has the authority and the judgment into eternity? Jesus does. Jesus dies, rises, and ascends to the Father, where he will sit at the right hand of God and judge the sons of men. One commentator says it this way it's the story of two courtrooms. One is run by the Sanhedrin and the other by Jesus at the Father's side. One utters blasphemy against the Son and the other will receive the Son as an equal. Either Jesus is right or the Jewish court is right, but Jesus' claim is either blasphemy or it is deadly, serious truth. Here's what I want you to understand. We have a choice of what we do with Jesus. There's no third option. There's no middle ground. We either need to crown him as king or we need to crucify him as a liar or a lunatic. That's what he is. C.S. Lewis calls it the trilemma. He says he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other option. Crown him or kill him. You can't just be a fan Of Jesus. My question to you today. Is that Luke. Is intent. On showing us. Who Jesus really is. He doesn't get caught up in any of the side stuff. But he goes directly at. His very identity. The fulfillment of who he is. And he asks you and me the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to put him on trial? Are you going to execute him? Are you going to bow the knee to him? Are you going to try to be Lord over the Lord of Lords? Or are you going to bow your knee to God in the flesh, the true King of Kings? What are you going to do with Jesus? That's why it bothers me when I fall into a place where my relationship with Jesus is cold and callous, where I have no desire to read his word. I have no desire to meet with the King of glory. It drives me crazy when I fall into that trap. Why? Because I'm proving myself to be indifferent to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Ryan, my religion is between me and God. Yes, your religion is personal, but your religion is not private. Your faith always plays itself out in public. And I'm not here to beat you, I'm here to encourage you to bow the knee to Jesus. I'm here to beg of you that Jesus is worthy of not just a day of the week or a couple hours on a weekend, but He's worthy of everything that you have. Everything that you have came from Him, and you are going back to Him. So, is He worthy of your life? Some people would say, well, I trusted Jesus for salvation for eternity, Well, if you trusted Jesus for salvation for eternity, surely you can trust Him with your today. Can you give Him your heart? He wants it. He's worthy of it. And you will never find a more satisfying pursuit than pursuing after who Jesus truly is. We've grown up in a church, a church tradition maybe, that has made Jesus out to be something that Jesus has not made himself out to be. He's a genie in a bottle. You go to him when you need him. He's your last resort. He's your helper. And those things can be true that we can run to him as a a place where I can take all of my prayer requests. But let me tell you. He is also the king of glory. He is the son of man who has been given eternal dominion. And your life. Your day. Falls in that dominion. What are you going to do? With Jesus? The second point that. That Luke comes to. Is this theme of of Jesus's innocence. Jesus's innocence. Let's read. Let's look at verse 1. 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You've said so. Listen, verse 4, 23, 4 is what I want to focus on. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I want you to scoot down to 23, verse 14 and 15. 23, 14, and 15 says, And, and said to, to them, You brought me this man. This is Pilate speaking again on behalf of he and Herod. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people after examining him before you, I, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. You see the theme? Innocent. Jesus is innocent. Now look at verse 22. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? They're shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And if you continue out of our passage for today, in verse 47, it says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, after the crucifixion had been accomplished, when Jesus had breathed his last breath, he praised God, the centurion did, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Now, Luke is not the only one that gives credence to Jesus' innocence and gives importance to Jesus' innocence. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says it like this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that good news? Tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's innocent. Hebrews 7:26 says for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. This is our Jesus, entirely innocent. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 says, he committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. So the question for us is, why in the world did Luke and other authors in the Bible spend so much time portraying Jesus' innocence to you and to me? Why why is it so necessary for us to learn about Jesus' innocent life? Now, if I were to ask you a question, this is rhetorical, please don't answer out loud, but if I were to ask you a question, uh, what did Jesus do to save you? Almost every one of us would immediately say, Jesus died for my sin. Right? Now, that's true, and that is a huge part of Jesus' salvation. But if we miss out on his innocent life, we miss out on something very necessary to understand our salvation and our own Christian life in the days ahead. So much of our focus is on that Jesus died for me, but it's equally important to understand what Jesus' perfect, sinless, innocent life accomplished for you. Because if it was not necessary for Him to be sinless, only that He died for you, the Gospels could be vastly different. But Jesus was a sinless Savior. So we need to understand, with His death, His death in place of ours, He died for our sins, and His death meant forgiveness for us. We get that. The innocent Jesus died so that the guilty, that's us, might go free. That's death. See, mainly we talk about Jesus as the one who died for me. But He didn't just die for you. He lived for you too. See, on the cross, there was something majestic that happened on the cross. Do you know this? That on the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of your sins and my sins and the sins of everyone who would trust in Him. So can you imagine the weight that Jesus bore there on the cross? Every person who would ever sin in Uh, history, who would trust in Jesus, every sin was heaped up, piled on Jesus, there on the cross. That is a heavy weight to bear. And so we talk about how our sins were put on Jesus, but there's something else that transpired there through the cross and through the resurrection. Not only was our sin imputed, put into, put on Jesus, But Jesus' innocent, righteous life at his resurrection was imputed to you and to me by faith. Did you catch that? It's not just what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus, but how can I stand before God on that day? Not only because of the blood of Jesus, but because of Jesus' innocence that has been imputed, put into my heart. When He takes up residence in my heart, His righteousness and His innocence and His purity and His perfection does also. So when Jesus looks at me, He doesn't just see a slate that has been wiped clean, but rather He sees a slate. Filled with the perfections of Christ. Isn't that good news? So when he looks at you and me, it's not like this. I hear this all the time. I mean, I hear this all the time. Yes, I trusted Jesus, and now I'm just trying to live for him and make him happy. Brother, sister, if that's what you're saying, that is a sad, horrifying existence. You want to know why that's sad and horrifying? If you if you trusted Jesus as your savior, but now you're just hoping to please him? Can I let you in on a secret? You didn't please him beforehand. What's the hope of you pleasing him now? You know the only thing I bring to salvation? A handful of sins. I bring no good to the throne room of grace. Even my best of deeds, can I just be honest, while in the body, even my best of deeds are tainted with brokenness. So if you're hoping to stand before God in glory one day and and have Him ask you, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, well, I trusted Jesus way back then, but I've been trying to, for all my life, make you happy and please you and live for you. And so, I hope that I've done that. We've missed what happened on the cross. See, there on the cross, our sins attributed, transferred into the account of Jesus and Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' innocence transferred into your account and my account. So that when I trust in Jesus, when I believe on Him for salvation, I have no other hope of salvation other than what Christ has accomplished for me. My sin account is emptied out and filled with the righteousness and innocence of Jesus Christ. So when you stand before God and you say, He says, why should I let you into heaven? You should say you shouldn't, but only because of what Christ has done. I have no other argument. I need no other plea except that Jesus lived and that he died for me. Family, do you understand the freedom in that? And it's not a freedom to sin. It's a freedom to please him. It's a freedom to live in such a way that the the overwhelming burden of pleasing God is not on me. But when the Father looks at me, he sees the innocence of Jesus. Not only did my sin burden fall off at the cross, but I was clothed in the righteousness of God. I think I have this one up there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5:21 says this. 2 Corinthians 5:21 says he who um, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, I want to show this to you real fast. He's innocent. But how does that play out? The Bible gives us the most perfect illustration of how God sees us and Jesus. Verse 18, there's a man named Barabbas. But they all cried out together, away with this man, away with Jesus, and release to us Barabbas. Verse 19 says, he was a man guilty... A murder, an insurrection. Man, this is a stand up citizen. We want that guy. We'll give you Jesus. You give us the murder and the rebel. Verse 20 goes on. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. We give Pilate a bad rap. But he got it more than the Jewish leaders did that day. Desiring to release him. Verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent. Demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. There's Barabbas. The insurrectionist. And the murderer. He's guilty. He's already been declared guilty, condemned, and put in prison. And there's innocent Jesus. And they said, we want to trade you the innocent for the guilty. Verse 24 so Pilate decided that their de- demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Listen to me church family. Who are we in this story? Who are we? Barabbas. Now, you could be the Jewish council too. Blaspheming Jesus. But in this story, you might be the Jewish council, but you're also Barabbas. You're guilty. But Jesus is willing to take your place. The innocent one. The flawless, perfect, sinless savior is willing to take the place of the one who is known to be guilty. He, you can enter into a relationship with him today. I remember when I met Liz. We, we met in Highlands, North Carolina. This is beho- before Highlands was really swanky. It was just a kind of a real people town. We were sitting in Main Street, because that's what you did on Thursday night, right out in front of what used to be Buck's Coffee Shop. And we were sitting out there, and she looked across the parking lot, and she said, man, I want that guy. (laughs) I promise my story's correct. (laughs) But I remember us talking, and... uh, we, just, we had just had some coffee with some friends and we went out after the, the music was over and after the coffee was gone and, and, uh, and we, we exchanged information and we started a relationship. Jesus wants to enter into a relationship with you today and to do that you've got to exchange some information. You've got to come off your sin and your past and your shame and your guilt you got to fess up to it. you got to hand it over. And I promise you, if you'll do that today, he'll exchange you his innocence. You will get the better deal. But he will not force his way into your life. So I pray that you today would not say away with Jesus and give us Barabbas, but rather you'd say, I'll give Jesus my Barabbas if he'll give me his righteousness. When, when Jesus exchanges his righteousness or his innocence for your guilt, it does two things. Number one, a transfer of his righteousness into your account. And two, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says it this way. It says that uh, when, when that happens, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Relationship. Innocent Jesus wants to bring sinful you into the presence of a holy God. And there I can stand boldly and courageously. Not because of my own works, but because of him who died, lived, died, and was raised for me. You ever say, if you ever say to yourself, I'm just trying to please God, remember, pleasing God is found in Jesus. It is your basis and it is your strength for pleasing Him. We don't please, we don't live for Him so that we might be saved. But we live for him because he has saved us. I don't obey him so that he might be pleased with me. I obey him because he already is in Jesus. You see, the gospel turns what we know on its head. And I pray today that you'd trust in Jesus. Would you pray for me or pray with me? As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, maybe it's on this day that you say, Ryan, I have been trying to live for God to make him happy with me. And today you found that to be a dead end road. And you want to trust Jesus as your own personal Savior and Lord. It might be personal, but it's never private. You want to trust Him as your Lord and Savior. That He lived innocently for you and died as a sinner for you so that He might bring you to God. If you want to trust Jesus today, as we sing a a hymn of invitation or a hymn of response, you can come and talk to me. I'd love to pray with you. And if you want to meet me one day this week for breakfast or lunch, I'd love to do that. And maybe it's time to just repent of trying to please God in my own strength. And trust what He did for you. Father, I pray for dear brothers and sisters in here. Some of them are simply friends right now. They've never trusted in Jesus. But you want them to. So I pray for anybody in here who's been trying to live religiously for you, to make you happy, Father, that they would run into the arms of Jesus, the innocent Savior. And trust in His his righteousness, in His righteousness alone. Father, for that person who has just been blaspheming You, mocking You, oh God, I pray that You'd soften their heart. And I pray, Father, that you'd use your word to help us fall in love with Jesus more and more. We love you. And would you move in our hearts right now. In your name I pray. Amen.